Welcome, Welcome to the East, to the East Dramacast. Dramacast. This program is brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Check out the awesome educational content at east.org, including our sister podcast, CareerCast. You can find East Minutes on our YouTube channel and follow all the latest news on Twitter at East underscore trauma. Now, on to the TraumaCast. I'm Lauren Dudas, a trauma and acute care surgeon from West Virginia University. Before we get started, I'd like to say thank you to Hemanetics for their generous and unrestricted grant for the Educational Resources Committee and TraumaCast. If you haven't listened to part one, please check it out. This is the second of a two-part series in which we had the opportunity to interview speakers from the East 35th Annual Scientific Assembly. Today, we hear more directly from the speakers as they step off the podium at the meeting, as well as an interview with the newly appointed East President, Dr. Deborah Stein. I'll reintroduce our host, then jump back into the interviews. Hope you enjoy. Hello, I am Samantha Terrace, an assistant professor at Wayne State University in Detroit. I practice acute care surgery at Detroit Receiving Hospital. My name is Megan Quintana, and I am an assistant professor at George Washington University. My name is Tatiana Cardenas, and I'm a trauma acute care surgeon at Dell Medical School, University of Texas in Austin. Hi, everyone. I'm Carrie Valdez, and I currently work as a trauma and acute care surgeon at Ohio State University. Uh, I'm with Dr. Karai. We just had a discussion about wellness, and his topic focused on wellness in the operating room. So, Dr. Karai, tell us why this is important. Well, I, you know, the reason I became interested in this topic is just looking around and seeing my colleagues oftentimes being cut down by injuries that are likely preventable. And I also recognize that we just have a high threshold for reporting or doing anything about these injuries. And I'm just concerned about the fate of our career as we're such uh, at high risk for these injuries. You talked about a anonymous 40-something-year-old surgeon. Do you have personal experience with injury as a surgeon? Oh, uh, all the time. And I think, you know, we, I didn't get to everything I think is important about physical wellness, but one of the things is recognizing it in ourselves. And then I'd say a step, going a step further, recognizing what type of events and what type of cases put us at high risk of getting these injuries, and we could potentially do some extra preparation for those events. And you also mentioned micro breaks. Can you tell us what those are? Yeah, it's a, a micropause. It's a, it's a concept that it's been published on over the past 20 years. Probably not as popular as it could be because it takes time away from the operating room, but it's a just a brief pause, uh, and it's been described every 20 or 30 minutes to just reset for a few seconds, uh, and, and I think it helps you regain physical focus and mental focus. And again, the data I showed demonstrated that it does decrease pain after surgery. It improves your error rate in a simulated environment after a long case. Uh, and then even improves your physical stamina uh, if you do these consistently. And I do recognize it's difficult to incorporate that into practice and it takes persistence, but it seems like I, I would be willing to bet that you might be more efficient 
even if you take away those few seconds of time every 20 or 30 minutes in actually conducting an operation. And do you get buy-in from everyone in the OR to participate in those micro pauses? I, I, you know, I think that's where leadership is important. I think if you're the attending surgeon and you say this is important, uh, you will get buy-in. I, and with it taking such little time, it's, uh, it's not a huge commitment. Yeah. And then, you know, we're just doing a summary of your discussion, but if you had, you know, one or two other things that you could recommend, kind of highlights from your topic, what would they be? For the, for the fitness aspects of it, and again, core workouts seem to be the, have the most evidence, is don't worry about uh, how you're doing, you know, like how, um, how much time you're spending doing them. Just try to make it consistent, make it a pattern or part of your day. And that really seems to be the most consistent key to successes consistency and and just making it part of your day well thank you so much this is a great discussion thank you i am interviewing dr taylor wallen who is a resident at university of cincinnati she looked at anti-fibrinolysis and traumatic brain injury and she's going to give us a synopsis of her presentation Thank you for the opportunity. Um, so we investigated the use of all current antifibrinolytic medications, most specifically TXA, Amicar, and aprotonin on the systemic and cerebral inflammation that is seen after traumatic brain injury. What we know is that traumatic brain injury is very common and especially what we found with the use of antifibrinolytics after the CRASH-3 trial showing that TXA improved brain injury related mortality. We wanted to evaluate the use of not only TXA but other commonly used antifibrinolytics to see if these could benefit especially secondary brain injury uh, modulation. So what we did is we utilized a closed head injury model via weight drop. And then 10 minutes after the weight drop, we administered either TXA, Amicar, or Aprotonin. And what we found is that from a systemic standpoint, actually we found an increase in systemic cytokine release with TXA administration. And interestingly, in the cerebral inflammatory response, we actually found a decrease of uh, cerebral inflammatory cytokines when we administered TXA. So what we found is a differing response in both the systemic and cerebral inflammatory cascade, which then kind of follows our further point of which is more important, systemic versus cerebral. In conclusion, our goal was to kind of see what the uh, systemic effects of these were. And then we, when we ended up evaluating TXA, we found that this was probably the most neuroprotective. And it also decreased the total amount of hippocampal P-tau as well, which we know is a common biomarker of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So not only did it decrease cerebral inflammation, but it also decreased hippocampal P-tau, which was a significant finding in our study. That's so interesting. And now with TXA, you were able to do a dose-dependent response to that. Is that correct? Yes. So we utilized three differing doses of TXA, 110 and 100 mg per kg. And we found that at the elevated dose of TXA, there was the most neuromodulation and the most significant decline in hippocampal P-tau. And then with Amicar and Aprotonin, what were your findings with those two drugs? Yeah, so with Amicar, we actually found that it may harm uh, isolated TBI patients in the stance that it causes an increase in both systemic and cerebral inflammation. And with Aprotonin, we needed further studies as most of the cytokines were elevated with systemic and some of them were decreased with cerebral inflammation. So we needed further investigation into that study drug um, in the future. Great. That's great. Thank you so much. I think this is so interesting and so timely given the excitement regarding especially pre-hospital use of these antifibrinolytic agents. So very exciting. 
And if you have a 30-second take-home point for us? 30-second take-home would be TXA is beneficial in the acute period in isolated TBI patients, and I would second consider using any other antifibrolytic at this time. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. I am with Amanda Hambrack. Introduce yourself, where you're from, and the title of your paper, and kind of summarize the, the report. Sure. Uh, so my name is Amanda Hambrack. I recently graduated from general surgery residency at NYU. I'm working as a general surgery attending at the Manhattan VA in New York and, and at Bellevue Hospital. Um, the title of our paper was A Disturbing Trend, an Analysis of the Decline in Surgical Critical Care Fellowship Training of Black and Hispanic Surgeons. Um, essentially, we looked at the data set from the GME office for matriculants and graduates, which is broken down by gender, race, and ethnicity for their survey responses. And then we also took a different look at the applicant data set from the, the SAFIS group for the um, trauma critical care applicants and essentially found that from 2005 to 2020, there's been a decline, um, statistically significant decline, in the number of matriculants and graduates of black and Hispanic men and women, while there has been conversely a significant increase in the uh, matriculants and graduates for white men and women. Um, and the decline is also seen amongst the applicant pool as well. Um, so it's an issue of applicants coming through, then applying to, and then graduating from the program. The data sets obviously leave um, some questions about how we can work to correct this issue and whether it's going to be a combination of, of inflow and, and creating more of a fixing leaks in the pipeline problem in terms of having more applicants come through, um, more matriculants, etc. And then if you have an issue with the analysis of the surgical critical care fellowship applications and what criteria are used to select applicants, and if it's a standardized exam scores, you know, there's inherent bias in those exams as well, so you may be then having a flawed system that you're using to screen out applicants and then missing a large proportion of these underrepresented groups. Um, that may explain some of the, the decreased numbers that we're seeing there. Um, so a disturbing data, it's just depressing data, but I think that it shows that there's a huge room for improvement. Yeah, this is a, you know, a trend that gets looked at a lot in medicine, and, you know, and I think what your you know, research has shown is, you know, here's the data, we clearly have a problem, now we have to develop some plans and some solutions to it. You kind of talked a little bit during your presentation about what those potential solutions could be. Could you just describe it a little bit for our listeners? Sure. So, you know, there's there's been descriptions about pipeline programs. They've been used very successfully for um, the STEM groups, which is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, in order to help, for lack of a better word, funnel in underrepresented groups into those high-achieving specialties. And so they've been used successfully for these underrepresented groups in, in medicine in order to match into surgical specialties. So working on, on patching those leaks in the pipeline in order to help bring in more applicants, I think, is a start. And then you have sort of the other end of the spectrum where a lot of applicants and medical students and residents um, cite a lack of racially similar mentors as a barrier to wanting to pursue a surgical career. So then fostering those faculty members and you know, promoting and recruiting and retaining those, those ethnicity and, and racial groups at the faculty level is going to be critically important in order to inspire mentorship and confidence in, in younger 
um, residents and students. So I think there needs to be an investment from an administrative level in terms of retaining and promoting within the surgical faculty they have, as well as increasing through the, the pipeline programs if they can. Well, thank you very much for talking with me today and for your presentation. Any last parting words of advice or things for our listeners? I think that the some of the social media campaigns of, you know, I look like a surgeon, see it, be it, diversity and surgery have all really powerful messages in them. And, you know, find someone who looks like you, doesn't look like you, shares the same interests that you have, and, and just reach out for mentorship wherever you can. Excellent. Thank you so much. I'm here with Dr. Shamas. We just completed the Cox Templeton Injury Prevention Manuscript Competition. Dr. Shamas, tell us a little bit about your paper. Oh, thank you so much for uh, for interviewing me. So our paper was uh, was about using the um, Whiskars database that is publicly available online. It stands for the Web-Based Injury Statistics Query and Reporting System. What we did is that we took the database and we looked at all of the firearm homicides from 2001 to 2019. And then we stratified based on race. And we, we saw we, we had some interesting findings. So when we looked at the overall population, we saw that uh, stricter uh, firearm laws were associated with um, lower homicide rates. However, when we stratified based on race, we saw that this association um, still held for the white population, but it did not hold for the black population. And this raises a lot of questions about, you know, disparities in, uh, in the effect of firearm laws on, on different racial groups. And um, we, we invite, you know, um, other authors to, to use our research to, to, uh, to expand on this topic and to look at what are some of the factors that might have um, affected this outcome. Your discussant brought up some interesting questions about surrounding states and kind of some other information that you would hopefully be able to extrapolate or dig a little deeper into. What do you think the future of the, your research will be? So, so this, this idea about um, looking at how neighboring states affect one another is actually very fascinating because let's say, for example, you have a, a state with a, a scorecard of A, which means that it's one of the most stringent states in terms of firearm laws. And then if it's surrounded by many F states, which are uh, states with more lenient laws, we, it would be very interesting to see that how would that affect the A states to be surrounded by the F states or vice versa. So, for example, we could be using, you know, Hawaii or, or Alaska as, as control states since they're not, they don't have any neighboring states. So that's, that's definitely an interesting uh, thing to look into. Any specific limitations that you think should be noted about the study? Yes. Um, so the major limitation is, is confounding variables, of course, because this database does not give us this data uh, on socioeconomic factors, for example, which is a uh, which is probably a major determinant, you know, in, in, in racial disparities, uh, especially in this study. Other limitations include the fact that this, this database does not um, include data on all of the races, it includes data on the white race and the black race. But we don't know anything about, you know, people of mixed race, for example, maybe maybe these have uh, this population has a has a different different outcome. Well, it's a very timely study, and good luck on the competition. I look forward to your manuscript. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm here with Jessica Shook from the University of Louisville. She just presented plasma resuscitation improves and restores intestinal microcirculatory physiology following hemorrhagic shock. 
Jessica, great job on your presentation. If you could explain to us what did you do and how did you figure this out? Thank you, and thank you for having us. So what we did is we took uh, rats and we used we compared crystalloid and FFP resuscitation. So we did a hemorrhagic shock model where we then, uh, following the hemorrhagic shock period, we gave back FFP or crystalloid, and then we also had a sham uh, set of rats that did not have any, any shock and then compared the microvascular oxygenation and PCO2 as well as the endothelial dysfunction following the hemorrhagic shock period. And we monitored these for four hours following that time. And we also then looked at the uh, endothelial glycocalyx breakdown measured by the syndicate levels. And we found that, the, as was expected, that crystalloid resulted in decreased microcirculatory blood flow that uh, FFP resuscitation resulted in improved oxygenation, as well as decreased PCO2 compared to the crystalloid resuscitation, which resulted in decreased, uh, persistently decreased PO2, as well as persistently increased PCO2, although both during the resuscitation period, both did restore for a short period of time. The crystalloid resuscitation resulted in a persistent decrease following the resuscitation period. And then looking at the vascular reactivity, we determined that the FFP protected against the endothelial dysfunction that follows hemorrhagic shock. And, and crystalloid resuscitation caused dysfunction. And looking at comparing acetylcholine application with sodium nitroprusside application, which determines whether it's an endothelial mechanism versus response to the vasodilators. Um, nitroprusside is the, was our standardization showing that the vasodilatory components still were there, but the response to acetylcholine was significantly decreased in the crystalloid group compared to the plasma group. So I'm not a basic scientist. What does this mean when you have the acetylcholine and the nitrate and the differences in the vasodilation? Uh, it basically kind of boiled down to it, the fact that the, the vasculature is able to dilate in both the crystalloid and the FFP groups, but does not respond to the acetylcholine in the crystal, crystalloid group, whereas with the FFP, it responds like it normally would, which is comparative to the sham levels. Something I found interesting is the group of rats that got FFP after bleeding and the group of rats that got crystalloid after bleeding, both of their blood pressures were turned back up to normal. So this isn't just a volume problem. There's actually components in here that are driving the endothelial destruction. Is that what I should gather from this? Yes, absolutely. So it's not a central hemodynamic problem. It's more of a microvascular phenomenon, and that's kind of what we were looking at through the microcirculation. And we looked at uh, all terms laser Doppler flow, which is the microcirculatory flow of the intestine as well. And even though the central hemodynamics had restored to normal with the crystalloid and the FFP, the crystalloid group was unable to maintain the intestinal microcirculatory flow that the FFP did. Well, that's very cool work. It seems like we're very close from bench to clinical practice, so I do appreciate you taking some time, and congratulations on being selected for the paper competition. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm here with Dr. Abid Khan from Colorado Springs, Colorado, who just presented a fantastic paper on a multi-center trial and the modified brain injury guidelines. Abid, if you could just tell us a little bit about what y'all found and changes that you made to the guidelines, because these truly are very useful. I know me at my institution, we, we all live by them. A few years back, we took a look at multi, in a multi-center fashion at the brain injury guidelines, and we found that some of the original brain injury guidelines, while as groundbreaking and awesome as they are, needed just a couple little little tweaks to what we felt 
improve them. The biggest one that we changed as far as patient safety is we moved epidural hematomas to all being classified as big threes. But the other things that we did were really just more clarifications. If you read the original brain injury guidelines, there's a little bit, a little bit of vague stuff that can be a little bit difficult to reproduce from center to center. The way that one person interprets something may be different than the way that someone else interprets something. So we tried to make the definitions, particularly of intoxication, of what constitutes uh, one, two, and three as far as subarachnoid hemorrhages are concerned. We tried to make them a little clearer and a little bit more consistently reproducible. And we think we've done that with our modified brain injury guidelines. What we did in, during this project is we've implemented them about two years ago at three different centers at the University of Colorado, at UC Health down in Colorado Springs, as well as at Loyola in Maywood, Illinois. And uh, we looked prospectively at what our real resource utilization savings were. And we definitely found a decreased length of ICU stay, a decreased length of hospital stay, a lower rate of admission overall, fewer CT scans, and fewer neurosurgery consults. So we really did have a profound effect on resource utilization. And we think that everybody should be doing this. I think that between Dr. Joseph's recent multi-center trial that he presented at AAST and what we've been doing, I think we can find that, you know, one version or another of the brain injury guidelines, they're safe to implement and they can really help you improve your resource utilization. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Have a good one. I'm here with Dr. Hudnell. He just finished his presentation about uh, using a fresh tissue cadaver model for surgical management of complex peptic ulcer disease. Dr. Hudnell, tell us a little bit about what you did. I think it's really important to note that uh, general surgery residents don't often uh, get the opportunity to take care of these types of patients given the medical management of peptic ulcer disease. However, we felt that it was important to give residents training opportunities. So we use a perfused cadaver model to teach residents how to do laparoscopic and open gram patch repair, as well as open GDA ligation, and phagotomy and entrectomy and ruin wiring constructions. And I know that this is uh, novel to most institutions, but a practice model that you guys have used in the past. Yeah, we find that it actually gives the residents a lot of confidence in their skills. Uh, We've used quality metrics, you know, both before and after residents go into the lab with this. And we found that with these very rarely used skills in, in advanced trauma and operative general surgery, that residents have an increased confidence in their skills afterward. So if um, someone was interested in seeing some of these experiences you have had, is there any opportunity on the EAST website to find them? So these will be uploaded to the JTACs for the masterclass video presentations. It was a very interesting presentation. I look forward to reading the manuscript. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. I am here with Dr. Ander Dorkin-Galastegi from MGH, who did an amazing presentation this morning on looking at defined ratios of platelets within a balanced transfusion. Dr. Dorkin-Galastegi, do you mind giving us a few minutes synopsis on your presentation? Absolutely. So um, using a large database, we evaluated first the um, prevalence of uh, unbalanced platelet versus unbalanced FFP transfusions during a massive transfusion uh, among U.S. trauma centers. And then we evaluated the independent impact of uh, the RBC to platelet ratio on 24-hour and in-hospital mortality in trauma patients. And what we found was that um, across U.S. trauma centers, unbalanced platelet transfusions are more common, are more prevalent than unbalanced FFP. Our, the RBC to platelet ratio was associated with a gradual and consistent uh, um, increase in 24-hour mortality as the ratio deviated from 1 to 1. 
And we, what we found was that um, unbalanced platelet transfusion was associated with a higher risk of mortality compared to unbalanced, to unbalanced FFP transfusion. That's really interesting. I think uh, anecdotally, a lot of centers, it makes sense that we have unbalanced transfusion ratios when it comes to platelets. And it was really shocking to me too when Dr. Jenkins stood up and kind of brought up the Houston paper again, showing that every minute towards massive transfusion protocol really shows a significant increase in mortality up to 5%. And you guys remind me, did, did, we're not able to look at the minutes to transfusion of platelets. Is that correct? Yes, that's, it's, it's not possible to do that using the ACST group database, uh, the data set that we used for this study. Survival bias is a well-established phenomenon in uh, trauma resuscitation studies. Uh, we acknowledge that and all uh, retrospective observational studies are subject to survival bias. We attempted to mitigate survival bias analytically by only including patients who had a consistent RBC to FFP and RBC to platelet ratio at 4 and 24 hours. So what this approach aims to do is that it, it excludes patients who had uh, compensatory transfusions and therefore more balanced uh, ratios at 24 hours as a virtue of surviving longer. Despite our analytic uh, approach, we cannot fully exclude survival bias and that should be an important consideration while, while interpreting the results of the study. And how do you see this study really changing practice as we move forward? Have you guys changed your practice? These uh, results are quite uh, uh, new for us as well, so not, probably not really. I think what, uh, what this study highlights is that for whatever reason, uh, probably for logistical reasons, platelets are you know, being uh, transfused in a less balanced manner. And we need to do a better job in terms of uh, prioritizing platelet transfusion during our uh, massive transfusion protocols. Definitely. I think with the association with mortality that you guys showed, I think that's a very... Uh, important take-home point. All right, thank you so much. I am here with Dr. Leah Tatibi from Cook County Health in Chicago, and she just gave us a fantastic presentation under a session entitled Mental Health Issues in the Setting of Acute Traumatic Injury, Interventional Tools for the Trauma Provider. And what she spoke about was trauma-informed care. And if you could give us a little bit of a background on what is trauma-informed care, and how can that potentially affect our patients and us as providers? Yeah, absolutely. So trauma-informed care is basically just a concept that our patients need to be cared for and uh, treated in a way that really addresses the situation that they're coming from and going back to. For example, a lot of our urban young firearm injured patients are in a situation where they've had uh, extreme levels of community violence exposures, high levels of adverse childhood experiences and things like food insecurity and violence within the home and such and just understanding that their coping mechanisms and their ways of processing related to their actual physical injury may be different than somebody who came from a setting where it was more, much more secure. So the idea of trauma-informed care is really kind of centered around an empathetic approach to both psychological and physical care. So not coming directly at a patient who just had their life threatened and coming in a very calm and relaxing sort of way. Um, those kind of things. Some of us do it very naturally, but the idea of trauma-informed care and developing a curriculum is really to kind of name it and standardize that training to make sure that our, our patients are really getting good comprehensive quality care. And you mentioned in your talk that we need to, we can potentially use this 
to also take care of ourselves and each other as providers. Can you expound upon that a little bit? Absolutely, absolutely. So I very, very strongly believe that you know our patients are not only those who are registered with an armband. Our patients are their families, our patients are each other, our patients are ourselves. And we cannot care for our patients if we are in a situation where we are not psychologically strong to be able to manage what we're seeing. And so we know that trauma providers, either in the hospital or pre-hospital, um, suffer significant amounts of post-traumatic stress injury. And by approaching that in a trauma-informed approach, recognizing the injury that's there, normalizing responses to it because it's not normal what we see. And so having a physiologic reaction to it is in itself a normal thing. Then it really kind of puts that stress and that injury out into the forefront, allows it to be addressed and treated before it truly becomes pathologic. Awesome. Thank you for that. And uh, lastly, are there any resources? You mentioned that there's a potential curriculum that will be coming up on the horizon. Can you give us uh, some more details about that and where we can find it? Absolutely. So the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma is working with a number of community organizations to come up with a trauma-informed curriculum through the iSAVE group which is supposed to be coming out in the first part of this year, so keep an eye out for that. Other places where you can look, the East Landmark Papers website has, we have a whole thing on violence intervention programs now, and we can make sure that some trauma-informed care resources get put up there. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. I have Dr. Hoshal. She's our East Orient's resident award winner. Why don't you tell us a little about your story or who encouraged you to uh, compete in this competition? Sure. So my name is Jillian Hoshal. I'm a current uh, fourth year general surgery resident at UC Davis. I was under the mentorship of Dr. Christine Kokenar at UC Davis, and she encouraged me to submit this essay, uh, which has been a great opportunity. So um, your essay was remarkable, and I think everyone felt the emotion behind all of that. If you wouldn't mind just summarizing kind of uh, what encouraged you to pursue a career in trauma and acute care surgery. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, so I think the, just the basis of my essay was about my dad and his suffering with ALS and kind of the journey we went through as a family um, and being caretakers and all those sorts of things and how that shaped my ideas of medicine. And then when I found trauma surgery, I think it really, it was changing for me because I realized that the trauma surgeon has the ability to kind of change the outcome of these life-threatening uh, um, injuries and all sorts of things. So <laughs> why don't you read that last paragraph for us? Because your own words say it the best. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So here's the last paragraph. It says, taking care of this memorable patient has forever changed my outlook on my career in medicine. It confirmed that not all devastating diagnoses have to end poorly and that I can be the difference that all patients and their families deserve. Unlike the promise to my dad, I am capable of upholding the promise of strong, compassionate care. I upheld this promise to my patient in the surgical ICU, and I will be able to do the same for my future patients. Even though my own experience with my father's terminal diagnosis was devastating, it provided me with genuine empathy for my patients and for their families. The opportunity to care for critically ill trauma patients is an honor that I do not take lightly, and I am sure that my dad would be proud of me. Well, thank you so much. Your story <laughs> is truly inspiring, and I look forward to what you're able to accomplish. Thank you very much.
I am here with Dr. Max Braverman, and we're going to talk a little bit about his quick shot presentation on whole blood resuscitation. Max, so tell us a little bit about yourself um, and your research. So, uh, hi, my name is Maxwell Braverman. I'm a trauma surgeon at St. Luke's University Health System in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, but I do most of my research work with UTL San Antonio, which is my alma mater. We look back after establishing a pre-hospital blood uh, system across our trauma region in 2018. We were curious about the impact of that system on hemorrhaging trauma patients. So we were looking at outcomes associated with patients that got pre-hospital whole blood versus those that did not. Uh, in terms of what we found, although the sample size was underpowered to look at a difference in mortality, the trends across all of our work are pretty consistent that there appears to be a mortality benefit, but we just haven't been able to fully show that statistically. What we have consistently showed is that there is a greater improvement in shock index for patients that are uh, in shock in the pre-hospital setting with the shock index greater than 0.9 or a shock index greater than one, they have a greater correction when they receive pre-hospital blood compared to those that do not. Pre-hospital blood is associated with a reduction in pre-hospital crystalloid administration. And we do see patients getting fewer units of platelets and products overall with a trend towards a reduction in donor exposure um, for patients to get pre-hospital blood. Great. Thank you so much. You know, during your presentation, you gave us a little bit of an idea of how the pre-hospital whole blood program works in San Antonio with regards to rotating the units, uh, where they're located, how it works, and it seems like it works out pretty well and it's pretty efficient and you waste very little. Can you give us a little bit of, of information regarding that? Yeah, so South Texas Blood and Tissue provides whole blood to University Hospital or uh, UTL San Antonio and they send those units actually out to the field across 13 different helicopters and 25 different ambulances. Those are from 18 different agencies total. Those units go out to the field for 14 days. They're quality controlled with tick packs and constant temperature monitoring. If the units are not used within 14 days, they're brought back to South Texas Blood and Tissue where they are quality controlled and then they're distributed to University Hospital for use in trauma or obstetric hemorrhage for cross-match compatible patients. That has led to really, really low wastage across the system, less than 1%. The quality control is excellent and it allows for seamless movement of blood products through the entire system. It's been very, very successful. Awesome. Well, thanks, uh, thanks Max, for all of the information that you've given us and I hope you enjoy the rest of your time here at East 2022. Yep, my pleasure, thank you for your time. So I'm here with Dr. Stein, our incoming East president. Dr. Stein, thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me. Thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity. So you were very missed at the meeting this year, but I will congratulate you on a very well put together and entertaining presidential introduction. Oh, th can I tell you, that was so much fun to put together. It was actually super fun. I hope it came across. I haven't had a chance to see it yet. I'm waiting to, go, to get the online version, but I am. Um, it was it was super fun for me to do. Jeff Claridge um, is just one of my favorite people in the world, and I really wanted to to do something that would a little bit a little bit outside the box, but also to certainly celebrate his presidency. I mean, it, this is not it's a difficult time to be a leader, and he's done it. He did an amazing job, and we're all super proud. And I'm just so sorry I wasn't there to celebrate with him in person. But I know that you guys all had a great time. Well, he had a really fun surprise ending to his address, so I'm sure you'll really enjoy once you watch. I've it. heard a little bit about it, but I'm waiting to. Say, I don't don't tell me the ending. Don't spoil <laughs> the ending for me yet. <laughs> I did have to ask him what sea animal he thought he was. <laughs> <laughs> what did he say? A dolphin. Yeah, I said the otter fans are going to be very sad. <laughs> I know, right? I personally thought the lobster was pretty good, but it, but you know, I'll let it go.
Okay, so tell us a little bit about your East story. You know, do you remember your first meeting? Who got you involved? Do you have any mentors, either formal or informal, through East? Yep, absolutely. I mean, East is just one of my, it is my favorite organization that I'm that I've been a part of uh, for a large number of reasons that you guys have all heard from from many many of you before. I do remember my first East very distinctly. Bill Chu, who was when I was a fellow, was one of my attendings, and then uh, subsequently became program director at the University of Maryland at the Shock Trauma Center. Was not my program director at the time, but he was like, "You have to join East. You have to join East. You have to join East." And I remember actually submitting my first abstract and I had an oral. It was my first oral presentation. It was on pelvic fractures and motor vehicle crashes. And it was 2004. And it was, I was just at a fellowship. It was the first meeting I went to. And I remember just having this, I remember I went to AAST at the same time, the same year. And I just remember having this real sense of community and belonging and comfort like even doing my first oral presentation, which is super nerve wracking for those of you who haven't had the opportunity to do it, no matter what form you're in, I just remember it being this like really welcoming environment. And I, my favorite story to tell about East is I remember the first time I was asked to speak at East, it was, I think the year after that, I think. And I did, I, it used to be the sunrise sessions, what we used to call them. It was back, back when they were like breakfast sessions. And I did a session as like a first year attending with Mike Rotundo and Tom Scalia, the three of us were the speakers. And I remember thinking to myself, where else would somebody who's one year out of fellowship get an opportunity to be sharing a podium or a stage with gods of trauma like Tom Scalia <laughs> and Mike Rotundo? And it was just like, and that, and and they, it was just that's just how East is. It's these, it's these allowing these really wonderful, amazing opportunities for people. Um, and it's just, it, it's what carries you through your career. It's such a welcoming organization. I hope that everybody feels that way. Well, I was going to ask it a little bit later, but one of the things that we talked about at the meeting really was the East growth. You know, they welcomed over three, I think we welcomed over 300 new members this year. How do you plan to keep that growth going, but also make it still feel like a family? Yeah, you know, we've struggled with this a lot. And one of the things that's kind of the most obvious example of this is the way we've had to change our venues over the years. We used to be in much smaller venues, more kind of intimate venues, and we've just gotten too big for that. So we really struggle with how to maintain that degree of intimacy and family while being as inclusive as we possibly can be. I will say I was super excited with the bylaws change that we were able to make this year to be even more inclusive and to really modernize the organization, to stop thinking about things by age and really be thinking about things about where people were in their career, which was always the intent. So it's really about supporting early mid-career trauma professionals, not necessarily young and age trauma professionals, which is, I think, a really important distinction and much more modern way, recognize that, that fewer and fewer people are following that traditional pathway of college to medical school, to residency, to fellowship, to to the job. And so, but how we kind of maintain the intimacy, I think is with through involvement. I think that the more sense of community people have um, is really going to be amplified by the more involved they get. And so this, the call for volunteers that we have every year, I just, for, so that everybody knows anybody who requests to be on a committee, we put on a committee. We want people to have that sense of engagement and purpose and dedication to the organization. So I don't know how to take 2000 people and growing and make us everybody feel like they're part of the family. But if we have 20 groups of 100 people or 200 groups of 10 people, probably doing the math wrong. I don't do public math, but 
But then that gets us to a sense where people do still experience that sense of community, that sense of belonging and kind of dedication to the organization. I think with respect to growth, one of the areas I'm very interested in and is kind of expanding out to the medical students. I think that many of us have these students who want to be engaged. They want to be brought into the organization and into they want to participate with us. And I think that if we could do that and the more operationalize that a little bit more to be a little bit more effective in how we do that, I think that catching people in that stage of their careers when they're still deciding what they want to do with their lives and bringing them in and showing those that we are by far the most fun, the most <laughs> welcoming and warm and encouraging group of individuals. And these are the people that they want to spend their lives, you know, spending time with. Then we, the earlier we get to them, the better we'll be that uh, dodgeball probably can't come back, but when the pandemic is at a better level, I guess, do you foresee the volunteer days or some sort of competition being returned to the meeting? I certainly hope so. You know, but dodgeball, it's, it's just too bad, right? I mean, do- it breaks all of our hearts uh, that we can't do <laughs> dodgeball anymore. And I certainly understand why we can't, we get it. But I certainly think that having friendly competition and um, a sense of, again, it, it promotes that sense of community and family and that was that's such an essential part of, of who East has always been is this kind of concept of, of we love each other and we can disagree and then agree and then hug and make up and hang out at the bar later on. So how we do that in a COVID era obviously has been very difficult, but certainly hopefully as we get back to more and more in person, we'll be able to do more and more of those types of activities. And I, th- I will say Jeff Damias um, has done a bunch of those things with respect to some of the development activities, like these like friendly competitions, which I think is super fun for people. And so I'm encouraging him as well as the rest of the board to really think outside the box of what other activities we can do that will kind of speak to each of our sense of that we all want to kind of, we all want to win. So let's figure out how to, <laughs> how to take advantage of that, right? One question that Carrie Valdez has asked a lot of the prior presidents is really, what is your advice for the early career surgeon as far as time management? Oh God, this is the age old question. I, I remember very distinctly, it was many years ago now, sitting and Dave Feliciano was giving one of the, I, it must've been the frame lecture and talking about being clinically excellent and excellent from an educational perspective and from a research perspective and you needed to travel. And do, and I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, I'm such a failure. I'm clearly failing so miserably at doing all of these things I'm supposed to be doing. And I think in this day and age, I think that time management is about doing the things that bring you joy, whether that's your family or patient care or research or education. I don't think it's realistic for any of us to be the quadruple threat that that our mentors were likely very successful at. I just don't think it's reasonable. I think, I don't remember which of my mentors said this, but I've I've heard this a couple of times, you know, your kids are never going to read your CV, right? You know, and doing things that bring you joy. For me, patient care brings me joy. And so I would never... When I try to think about time management, the thing I'm I'm completely 100% unwilling to give up is my time taking care of patients. That's the thing that, that brings me joy at work. Being a part of East, I would never give up my involvement and my dedication and the time I spend with East because that brings me joy. And if those things that bring you joy also bring you success, it's a win-win. And that I think is how you manage the time is maximize the things that bring you joy because those are the things that you're going to want to spend your time and energy on. And the other things, there are always going to be things that you have to do that don't that, that you don't want to do. Okay, fine, we all get that. Minimize those things and maximize the things that that make you feel good, things that you want to be doing. Do you bring work home with you? Nope, I don't. Every now and then, I will let my husband know that there's a specific deadline, I have a specific grant deadline, or a specific manuscript, or something. I will let him know in advance. Hey, Saturday, I'm going to need to do a couple hours of work, but I literally do not bring work home with me. Um, I'm a morning person. I'm not a night person. So I'd rather come into work 
at six or six thirty and spend an hour at my desk getting through stuff before I round in the morning. I'm super efficient that way. I do not bring work home with me and I haven't for my entire career. But I realized that everybody works differently also and, and there's no right way to do that. Yeah. So it's different for everybody. But I do think that this concept of carving out work-life balance, and I did it very poorly for a long time, I freely admit. Um, when I was the, my first go-around at the University of Maryland, you know, I worked 110 hours a week. I, I never said no to anything. I was always at the hospital. And I promised my husband when we, when we returned to Maryland that the thing I would not do is fall back into those old patterns. And so, you know, between you and me and now all the East membership, I have, to, I have, you know, I quit smoking three years ago, haven't had a cigarette in three years. So the thing I'm most proud of in my life, but I started exercising. So what did I do when we moved back to Maryland is I carved two hours a day on my schedule for the weeks I'm not on service. So for like self-care, and that doesn't necessarily not need to be that may just be taking my dogs for a long walk and that's okay. But that's what I, I devoted to for myself. Um, Have you found yourself to be any less productive? No, if anything, I think I'm actually more productive. When you're so overwhelmed with the stuff that you have to do, it's really hard to, for me, it's really hard to get anything done. And so for me, I'm actually more productive, the more organized I can be about setting time aside for things. We're always going to be behind. I remember I, um, my sister, who's a colorectal surgeon, who's the uh, former president of the Association for Women Surgeons, she had dragged me to something one year. And I, I remember somebody was giving this talk. It was this wonderful talk about these quadrants of, of importance of activities versus time sensitivity. And we all live in this high importance, high time sensitivity quadrant where, we're, where you really want to live is no time sensitivity, but super important. And if you can find, I try to do one of those things each week. Just pick one and accomplish one of those things. It has no time sensitivity, no deadline, but really important to actually get done each week. That's really good small. And I, I'm a big fan of lists and I'm a big fan of putting things on a list that I've already done so I can cross them off my list. So I'm already, <laughs> I'm already ahead of the game. Do it at 6 a.m. and that's even better. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but don't get me wrong. But after 4 p.m., I'm useless. Like I'm totally useless. Like don't, don't schedule a meeting after 4 p.m. because you're not, you're getting nothing. Oh my gosh, it's 347. We're getting close. Right, we're, we're close. <laughs> Have you identified any specific initiatives for the organization that you want to accomplish next year? Yeah, so, you know, it's it's interesting. You um, you think a lot about what you want your presidency to look like, and then life gets in the way. I think that one of the things that I have, I've met with all the committee chairs, really asked each of them to go back to the, their committees and they're the subject matter experts on what their committee, what the activities and the work product should look like. So rather than, I want this to be kind of an introspective year where we're all going back to kind of the mission. Each committee has its own mission. They have their own work product and kind of the committee chairs have asked them to go back to those, those groups and say, what should we want? What do we want to be doing? What are the things that are going to bring us joy to be involved in? What new initiatives do we want? What are things that we think will benefit the membership, the organization, and advance the care of the injured patient? And I really, so it's almost like kind of a, it's been a tough couple of years, and I don't want to impose more stuff on people that doesn't have value and doesn't make people, that people aren't engaged in. Again, it, it, it sounds so silly now that I hear myself saying it over and over, the things that bring people joy. Like I want people to to be happy with the, their work product and, and be proud of it. And I, don't, I think it'll be much more effective at doing that if, I, if those individuals decide what those activities and those work products should look like. So that's one big thing. The other big thing is kind of this concept of going back to why we all do what we do. 
and I had, I had a very much of a career trajectory change and then kind of change in the winds and, and going back and forth a little bit. But one of the things I did realize was that I really listening to our patients and listening to what our patients needs uh, are is something that I have not spent enough time and energy doing. It's, it's one of the things I'm doing from an academic perspective now. Uh, where we're actually working with a unbelievable group of people. Uh, Anna Newcomb is my co-principal investigator, where we're actually creating a patient and stakeholder injury research engagement panel to help inform trauma research so that we're asking the better, more relevant questions of what's important to our patients. And so I think, um, as I think about this year and what I really want to, what I really want to accomplish is us to be making sure that we are focusing our time and energy and activities on things that are, that, that are meaningful to us and are meaningful to our patients and their families and their and their caregivers. And she's, Anna Newcomb is really involved with the Trauma Survivors Network, right? That's correct, yep, yeah. exactly, yeah. And she's actually, she's an honorary member of East. I believe it was uh, Andrew Bernard during his presidency uh, nominated her for honorary, honorary membership. Yeah, she's, uh, she's amazing. And so we're in the process of doing, we're about to start on our focus groups um, and we will certainly be looking to the membership at East to help us out with those panels as well. Oh, that's awesome. Last thought for the members and the trauma community at large. You know, please, please, please be kind to yourself. I have not had an opportunity to um, hear again here all the content at East, but I know there was a lot of discussion about wellness. I used to, I used to roll my eyes at the concept of wellness. I freely admit that. And now I think that the last couple of years, if it's taught us nothing else, that being kind to each other, being kind to yourself, being joyful, being happy doing things that make you happy. God, how I, it's, I was so stupid. I underestimated it so much uh, for the past 15, 20 years of my life and my career. And the last couple of years, again, if it's cause nothing else, it is to be kind to each other and be kind to yourself and stop putting so much pressure on ourselves. Things have a way of working out. And, and I remember I used to sit and, and feel, you know, if I, if I didn't feel like I was doing everything, I felt like I was doing nothing and taking, really taking stock of, stop focusing on the things that you didn't accomplish and start focusing on the things that you did. Because this is a group of amazing individuals who do amazing things every single day. And, and I think we don't nearly often enough stop and recognize and appreciate that. So I would encourage us all to do that. I'll, I have to remind myself too as well, but I'll try to remind you guys also. Well, you can remind yourself when you listen to the trauma cast in a couple That's weeks. That's right. <laughs> I'll play it over and over again. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been really inspiring. Thank you, Lauren. It's a pleasure. Appreciate it. That wraps up another episode of TraumaCast, brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Visit east.org to check out all the great educational and career development resources we have to offer. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs or interviews. If you're searching for cutting-edge science, professional education, networking, and career development, remember, all you need to do is look to the East.